0: Welcome to the Sports Equity Podcast. Here we talk to special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices. With your host, Brett Weisbrot.
1: Our guest today is a master's graduate in marketing, has spent almost 30 years contributing with some of the most iconic brands in Disney, Nickelodeon, HBO, at and Apple, to also spending time in the NBA, MLB, and agency side of the sports industry with a diverse and creative background, and now more recently distributing Kick It by EP and Lunchtime Conversations all over social, highlighting women contributing in business. Today, we welcome Elisa Padilla to the program.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Brett. I'm excited to be here
1: with you. Yeah, I'm excited too, because I get to see you interview people. Now I get the chance to give it to you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know. You're turning the tables. <laughs> it's good.
1: It's, it's, I'll tell you, I tried for, for my first time recently. Someone had me on, and it was interesting. It's good practice, of course, but it's definitely interesting sitting on the other side of the table, so you'll have to give me some feedback after the fact.
0: Yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: cool. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from originally?
0: Sure. So, I'm originally from Newark, New Jersey, so I'm an inner-city kid. Um, I have the past 25 plus years in the sports and entertainment sector, specifically on the marketing side. And I have had the privilege to work on with some amazing people, um, some um, amazing brands. And, you know, I I've learned so much um, throughout my career and I continue to learn every single day. So I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate to have had the experiences that I have had, and I'm looking forward to what's next. Well,
1: you know, early in life, where did you find yourself first? You know, growing a passion in sports.
0: So, interesting. In, interestingly enough, um, I grew up in a very strict Latina household where girls were not allowed to play sports. So, I grew up watching my older brother playing high school basketball. He was a. Um, he was the star of um, SS Catholic High School, and we used to go watch him play basketball um, as family outings. So fell in love with the sport then, and then was lucky enough that my first um, full-time job after college was with the New York Knicks.
1: I've heard some good stories, you know, but early on, before you even got the full-time job with the Knicks, you know, where were some of your first internships, your first experiences in the business?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So my very first internship, because I wanted, I, I have an undergraduate degree in communications, and I originally wanted to do television. My very first internship was at Madison Square Garden Network. Um, so I did that for two semesters, um, realized quickly that I didn't want to do television. And then after I graduated, I did an internship with Virginia Slim's Championships um, oh my God, that's so many years ago. Um, but I did um, a six month internship with that tournament and it was great. I met some great, great people um, and yeah, had, a, had an amazing time.
1: So you had the opportunity to cross paths with Steve Bronner and Bill Goldstein back
0: then? I know Steve Brunner. Um Steve was my boss when I was an intern at Virginia Slim's Championship. And Steve is the one, believe it or not Britt, who taught me about networking because we were, as part of the intern class, he made us fill out our name, our address and our phone number in um, an Excel uh, spreadsheet so that, and then he made copies for all of us so that we could all stay connected. So it was like, oh my goodness, you know, he was like, you never know where you're gonna end up. So Steve and I have remained friends. He's a, a wonderful, wonderful, um, you know, part of my history. And then, yes, I know Bill Goldstein as well from my time at the Garden.
1: And from there, you transitioned directly to the Knicks?
0: So after I finished my internship with Virginia Slim's championship, I stayed very closely connected with the HR people at Madison Square Garden. And back then, Brett, they were – we freelancers were called temps so I did a, a, um, a temp stop in the boxing department I worked in the boxing department for I think it was like two months they needed somebody to just literally stuff press releases and folders so I did that and then after that was done there was an opportunity to go work for the New York Rangers and the New York Rangers needed someone to respond to their fan mail. And I remember I was getting paid $8 an hour and I was in a tiny, tiny little closet. And I, there, were just, there were just boxes and boxes filled with mail. So I did that probably for about, I want to say maybe it was about six weeks. And then the position with the Knicks came up. Um, it was the marketing assistant position and the woman from HR said, look, this is very entry level, but it'll get you in the door of where you want to be. It's within the marketing department. So I went and I went through the whole interview process and I'm like, they're never gonna like, they're never going to hire me, you know? Um, but I, I remember, I mean, I even, I interviewed with the president of the team, Dave Checkets, back then, um, and I was lucky enough to get the job.
1: And what did that role look like at the Knicks?
0: Yeah, so I was, um, I was the marketing assistant, so I was the assistant to the director of marketing, and I did everything from answering phones, typing letters, um, faxing, yes, faxing, um, um, making copies, ordering lunch, scheduling meetings, and what I learned in that position was the more and the more that I did my job at 150%, it was the more responsibility that I got. So um, my boss, who's my mentor till this day, slowly started infusing me in the creative process, And then once I got infused with the creative process, then I started to get infused with the budget process. So slowly I was taking on additional responsibilities. And two years later, I got promoted to manager of marketing administration where I was basically um, the liaison between our group and um, the creative group. I managed the department budget and then also worked with the partnerships group on sponsor programs.
1: And were you living in the city during this time period?
0: I was actually living in the suburbs of New Jersey. So back then I would take, I would be on a train for an hour and 20 minutes. I would be on the path, another train, for another 20 minutes. And then I would have to walk like five blocks to get to the garden. So it was a two hour commute each way. Um, but I did that for many years then, you know what? It's, you know It was way, way too expensive to live in the city. Um, so I did it, and you know what it was it was an amazing it was great it was great
1: back right it was the foundation for a lot of your experience later
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely, and also too, where i learned i learned the fun- the true fundamentals of sports marketing because the woman that I was working for was brilliant, and just i she just took me under her wing and she taught me so much. So to your point, it was the foundation of, you know, my entire career.
1: So you changed it up a little bit after that. And you did some, you know, spend a little bit of time at Disney doing some sports marketing. You know, what was your biggest takeaway being more on on, on a, a brand side away from a team?
0: So interesting. I went, I went to Disney. Disney had just opened up their sports complex and I joined in April and I was working on the tennis program and I was working on the baseball program. So the way that the department was set up was you were, you were a marketing representative for a specific sport and you handled everything of that sport from A to Z. So it was very interesting because it's Disney, right? A global brand, they have all these resources and it really just taught me how to position a venue and how once you got the program to the venue, then how to promote it. So again, another layer to prepare me for my future job, you know, when I ended up at Barclays Center. However, the, the stint at Disney was short because I had only been there for a few months and they quickly realized that sports was over here and the rest of the Disney machine was over here. And they said, okay, you know what, it doesn't make sense for the sports people to be making their own contacts or to, you know, to be developing their own relationships when they should be capitalizing on everything that we're doing for the theme parks. So they decided to merge the groups. And I just, you know, I didn't move to Florida to do theme park marketing. And I decided that, you know what? I didn't want to do marketing for a theme park and I decided to come back to the Northeast. Um, but it was an unbelievable, that was another a great experience. Some time in basketball
1: early on, it brought you back to the NBA now, but more at the league level, right? Managing their events. You know, how yeah. was this different for you before than working specifically for one property?
0: Well, the biggest difference is that I got to see how the league developed their programs and developed their events and how that drilled down and, and cascaded to the and to the local teams. And how we from a from a league perspective developed programs and then went into the markets and worked with the teams to execute it at the local level. Um, I was there for five years and I mean I worked on nba jam session i worked on um rhythm and rings which was the music basketball music tour Um, i worked on the WNBA all-star game i worked on a mexico project i got to travel i mean i i again so lucky i was able to travel to so many parts of the united states that i would have never probably gone to had I not worked at the NBA. I mean, I traveled to Seattle, I traveled to um, Utah, to Portland, to all these cities, which again, I probably, if I didn't have, you know, the experience at the NBA, I don't know if I would have gotten to all those cities.
1: That's great. And what would you say was your favorite event to work with and build? So
0: NBA two ball, was the program that I worked on during my um, during my time at the NBA, and it was my favorite um, event that I worked on because it was really about teach working with the local teams and teaching kids how to play basketball and teaching them the fundamentals of the game. And then there was um, there was a the national competition, and all these kids got to play, and then the winners. Um, ended up at the championship. And I remember I met a woman from Chicago, she was, she was part of the NBA two ball championship. And Brett, she reached out to me last year. And she's like, I don't know if you remember me, but you know, I was part of the NBA, I was part of the NBA two ball championship um, event. And you know, you were so great. And you know, the NBA did such an amazing job. And I'm so happy to reconnect with you. And I'm like, I was like, oh, my goodness. Yes, number one, I remember you. And number two, to have to have basketball have made that impact on that young woman is just really incredible.
1: That, and she must have come across Steve Brauner's principles of networking.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. absolutely.
1: Um, you know, and then I guess for, for you mentioned fundamentals, but for you more like fundamentals and principles of marketing, you know, what are some things you learned early on in, in a role like that, that you've practiced all these years since?
0: Know your audience, know exactly who you're going after, you know, how, and understand who they are and where they are and where to find them. And number two is data is how do you leverage data to help you make decisions, Um, You know, when I was at the NBA, um, the process that we went through to select site locations for our events was pretty incredible. Um, You know, you looked at the city, you looked at what other sports teams were there, you looked at the population. I mean, there was so much that went into that considerations that that when, and, and now it's just like, okay, they were just looking at data. So that has been something that, you know, those two things have been, you know, core principles in my entire, um, in my approach now.
1: You know, what aspect of that do you think would have made your job easier back then?
0: You know, I think that, I think looking back, had that been the first stop, I think it would have made the job a lot easier as opposed to, when I look back, we used to come up with these great ideas and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And, you know, we would go from like a, to let's say, you know, G, and then we'd be like, Oh yeah, maybe now we need to talk to the business intelligence group or, you know, to the data group. So I think now that's the first step before, I mean, the second, a concept comes to mind, it's like, okay, what data do we have to support this before we go from A to B?
1: So, you know, I'm moving along here and there's some, sometimes I want to stop, right? But there's just so much good meat to these brands that you've worked with over the years, right? You know, you continue to work such as iconic brands like Nickelodeon, HBO, at and right? Just, you know, an array of different brands from a marketing perspective, you know, what was your biggest takeaway from working for all those brands during that time of your career?
0: You know, I think they were all very special and unique in their own way. Nickelodeon taught me about multicultural marketing. It taught me about kids programming. um, and And I'll make the point about multicultural marketing because nickelodeon when i joined dora the explorer was through i mean the ratings were through the roof and i worked in the events and attractions department and we were responsible for putting together a live dora show and again looking at the data um it's like okay there's opportunity here in mexico there's opportunity here in latin america because this character is his is latino so, from that perspective, just like opened my eyes in terms of okay, so you can take a product that has been developed domestically, and how does that translate into the international markets? Um, HBO working on the pay per view business, you know, there it was all about getting consumers to push a button, right, on Saturday night when we were promoting a pay per view event. So, what is that behavior like? How early do they commit? When do you have to spend the marketing dollars to get in front of them? But then you really need to save money to, for the week of the fight, because that's when you're going to do your last push, which again, all of that and those formulas all helped me when I got to Barclays Center and I was promoting uh, concerts. So, um, and then at I mean, it was all about mobility, all about, you know, the Selling, and I know like at the core, working for at and was about selling phones to people. However, the flip side of that is how phones enhanced people's lives, right? The, the, the communication and that connectivity um, to stay connected to your family or to your friends. So, and I, at at and was when I learned about churn. Um, You know, it was about looking at the data of, okay, we're selling these many plans, but you know what, how many people are leaving us um, on a monthly basis? So again, just all things, um, you know, different aspects of marketing learned along the way.
1: How how do you enjoy boxing now that you're in more of a marketing role than maybe being an intern?
0: Well, you know what, I have to tell you, I didn't. When I think, I didn't realize that there was an art to the sport of boxing until I experienced my very first event live in Las Vegas. I was sitting, Brett, I was sitting five rows back from the ring, and um, it was Eric Morales, it was a super featherweight fight, um, and it was Eric Morales and, and Antonio Marquez. And I just, the footwork and the eye coordination, I was just, I was amazed. And after that event, I just had a different appreciation for the sport. Um, and when you think about the stories that these boxers have and, you know, their passion for for the sport, it, it just experiencing it live was just a, just a different eye opener. That's all.
1: If you go back to these roles, is there anything you would have done differently?
0: No, no. I think that I made all of those, all of those decisions were very strategic in nature. I left the NBA after I had completed my MBA in marketing and I wanted to be a well-rounded marketer. So I went to media to learn media, to learn that industry um, and, you know, spent a few years in media. And then when I went to at and it was about customer acquisition and customer retention and the retail space and what that looked like. So Every single position was very um, thought out um, because I wanted to be a well-rounded marketer.
1: Right. You know, I know you had the opportunity to teach at NYU for four years, you know, right around this time. You know, what did you enjoy most about replacing yourself with up-and-coming sports marketing talent?
0: Well, what I loved there, Brett, was that it was a two-way street. I was sharing my knowledge, but I was also learning from the students because they were seeing the world differently and experiencing the world differently than when I was in their seat, right? Um, you know, everything from as simple as having a cell phone. When I was an undergraduate, I didn't have a cell phone. Like cell phones weren't a thing. Um, so, you know, that, that was the best part of that experience. Um, and I still, I still keep in touch with a few former students um, but just that, that dialogue, that back and forth and, and seeing the world through their eyes was very enlightening.
1: Do you remember any specific conversation with the students where you remember them challenging you?
0: Probably maybe a handful. Um, but I remember I was sitting in a class and I was teaching sports marketing um, and I had given the students a case study in regards to um, Danica Patrick and GoDaddy. And um, that's when they had formed that partnership and um, GoDaddy spent tons of money on putting billboards up in um, Times Square. And I remember I I had a few students challenge like why was GoDaddy spending all this money? Um, because you know where was the research that showed that you know New York was you know the um, had a high penetration of NASCAR fans? And I'm like, well, it wasn't specifically about NASCAR fans. It's think about Times Square. The people who go to Times Square. And the, even whether you're domestic or international, everyone's going to want a website or need a website or go visit a website at some time. And I just remember that was one that stuck out in the back of my mind where they really pushed back and like they didn't get it. Um, well, at least it was, I guess, didn't into a great job of articulating, um, you know, the, the marketing strategy from GoDaddy's perspective. But that was one where they really challenged me.
1: That and the fact that it was about Danica and really nothing to do with NASCAR.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So in 2010, you went back to the team side. And the cool thing for me is that, you know, growing up in Livingston, New Jersey, my original dream of working in sports evolved around liking the Nets. So you had an opportunity to be the director of marketing with the Nets. How did that opportunity come about?
0: So interestingly enough, I was working at AT AT&T and I got a call from a recruiter and they were looking to fill a director of marketing position for Barclay Center. And um, the recruiter who called me said, oh, you know, we have your resume on file. And, you know, tell us what you're doing. And I had just finished leading the marketing efforts to open up the first AT&T store in Chinatown. Oh, cool. So I <laughs> shared with her, I was like, oh, you know, these are the types of things that I'm working on. And she's like, oh, she's like, that's really... Um, really great experience, and you bring a totally different perspective to this role. I said, okay, no problem. I it's like, look, I've never sold tickets or have been on the entertainment side, so um, I went in for the interview, and it just so happened, Brett, that the gentleman that I interviewed with shared with me, I interviewed with him on a Friday at three o'clock in the afternoon, and the first thing was like, who? Who conducts an interview on a Friday at three o'clock I'm like this is probably you know ju- they just they just want to check the box um but the gentleman said oh you know what the the woman who is the director of marketing for the Nets just resigned on Monday and we're looking to fill both positions so I was like oh that's very interesting so I called the recruiter as soon as I got out of the interview And I said, hey, I said, I don't know if you know this, but they're looking for a director of marketing for the team. That's the job that I want. I said, I don't know if you're doing the recruiting for it, but that's really the job that I want. And, you know, I had the interview on Friday. I got called back on a Tuesday. I got called back on a Thursday and then got called back a week later. So everything just fell into place. And I was lucky enough to land there in November of uh, 2010.
1: And one of my favorite quotes from that time period was Jersey strong, Brooklyn ready.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Can you
1: tell us a little bit about the evolution of that?
0: Yeah, so absolutely. So I joined the team 18 months um, before the move to Brooklyn. We were still playing at Prudential Center. We were a lame duck in terms of the team wasn't winning. Attendance wasn't great. The governor had already said, you know, if you don't want to be here, leave. Um, And that that Jersey strong Brooklyn ready was really the bridge of introducing Brooklyn into the picture. Um, we were, you know, there were guardrails in regards to how we could promote Brooklyn while we were still at Prudential center because we still had tickets to sell, um, to the season at Prudential center. Um, but that was just our way of, you know, whether it was on radio spots, TV spots, Collateral material that we could have have the nod. Hey, we're here, but this is where we're going, um, and it was very effective.
1: So what was the biggest challenge?
0: Well, the biggest challenge was keeping New Jersey alive, meaning selling tickets to the games in New Jersey you know, putting 150% of your energy behind making sure that we hit our attendance goals and then preparing for Brooklyn. So it was almost like I had a day job and a night job. So during the day, I would focus on New Jersey. And then at night, while I was at the games, you know, my team and I would be sitting, you know, whether it was in the upper level or sitting, you know, in the press room talking about Brooklyn and putting together our strategy for Brooklyn.
1: And, um, you know, I guess it must have been interesting at the time, right? You know, filling games in Newark when you had been playing East Rutherford and then transitioning to Brooklyn. You're in like three different places within probably about a two year period of time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what was what was very interesting, Brett, was the transition from East Rutherford to Newark, which I, you know, very close geographically. And however, we had transit in Newark, people could take the train um, to Prudential Center um, so that the whole communication, um, the, the transportation communication plan was important to us. Um, there was also in Newark where Prudential Center is located, there was also the Ironbound section so there was nightlife there in terms of restaurants. Okay, so how do you pull those people to to cross Macarta Highway to go to Prudential Center, and then geographically from Prudential Center to Barclays Center, only twelve miles. So we already knew, though we had research that showed that um, that showed, excuse me, that only twelve less than ten percent. Of our season ticket holders were going to be going with us to Brooklyn. So for us, Brooklyn was—we approached to this an expansion team, um, and it was almost like a blank canvas. Like we were coming in, um, you know, with no fans, and we knew that there—that was a huge opportunity for us.
1: And who uh, was your biggest uh, mentor during uh, these years?
0: So my very first boss from um, the Knicks. Um, a woman by the name of Pam Harris, who I'm still, who till this day is my mentor. Um, she inspired me and I've modeled my career after hers. Um, she has been very, very instrumental um, in my path.
1: That's awesome. And then you continue to evolve here, right? Into an SVP role, into a CMO. You transition the brand from being just the Brooklyn Nets to being BSE Global. Um, you know, they had some hockey, boxing, all different things. Um, you know, what would you what would you say attributed most to that success?
0: Well, I, I think the people around me. Um, number one was the team that I was that you know was around me um, when when I started with the Nets in twenty ten. There was fifteen people in the marketing team. By the time I left in twenty seventeen, there were sixty two people on the marketing team. So I attribute. The, those people um, and us working together and I also attribute the people above me, the gentlemen that I reported into and also the CEO of our team and of the arena and for the opportunities that they afforded me because without the combination of the two Brett I don't think that I would have had you know the success that I had and you know I am forever grateful for those two gentlemen. Um, you know, who were at the helm, who gave me all those opportunities. And then I will be forever grateful for the team that, you know, I was able to assemble and that we all worked so well together to, you know, to open up Barclays Center, to host um, and welcome the New York Islanders, you know, to have boxing events. Like it took a lot of people to do all of that work. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful for all the for all their contributions.
1: You know, you're working for Brett when you're in Brooklyn, who's a very creative and partnership centric president. How did that challenge you even more so on the marketing side?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I worked for, you know, with Brett for seven years and Brett challenged me every single day. And every single day you had to go into that office with your eight uh, you you had to be on your A-game, and if you weren't on your A-game, you know what? You might as well just go home, but, um, you know, he Brett is a visionary. He is so smart, and he is very passionate about his work, and, you know, the one thing that I will say is that Brett provides opportunities for people that work with him, um, and you know, I wouldn't trade those seven years for anything else because he made me a better marketer. He pushed me, and you know, I always tried to stay one step ahead of one step ahead of him, um, Brett. I wasn't always successful, but at least I tried. <laughs>
1: right. I would say was your biggest success story in Brooklyn.
0: Um, I would say the launch of the team, um, the Hello Brooklyn campaign was um was a tremendous success. We went, we launched um, the brand at the internal team with our external agency partner. And the fact that, you know, when we launched that day to see merchandise sales go up, to see um, season tickets being purchased, to seeing um, partnerships sign with us. To see sweets being sold. Um, it was just very exciting. It was just like, like we're here, and people, you know, that the borough of Brooklyn is embracing us. It was just, it was very, it was wonderful.
1: Um, so, you, so awesome experience. Love hearing about the Nets. You know, I know you went back on the brand side to further grow your marketing skill set. Um, you know, first leading a product, product launch now with Apple. What was it like working at Apple?
0: So Apple, that was a fantastic opportunity. Um, and the one thing that I learned at Apple was that w- what was most impressive about working at Apple was that everyone who works at Apple is committed to developing products that are going to enhance the lives of people. And that was very eye-opening and just from day one, um, from a marketing perspective, there's two brands that I really admire, Apple and Nike being one and two or, you know, no, in no particular order. But um, so to have that opportunity- You worked uh, to work
1: in New York for Howard Hughes Corp, right? Leading marketing strategy for the Seaport District?
0: Yeah, Where, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, how is that role different than some of these other opportunities?
0: Um, so I think it was very exciting, Um, Howard Hughes, um, the company is very, you know, innovative and forward thinking and the project in, um, the financial district in Manhattan is just a really cool one. Um, they opened up, um, a rooftop venue and the backdrop of that venue is the Brooklyn Bridge and it is spectacular, um, And then they also, you know, developed a a culinary experience and they're actually in the process of opening up the second half of that culinary experience with the Tin Building. Um, But, you know, that was revitalizing um, the Seaport District and making it a destination in Lower Manhattan. So that um, that was pretty exciting. And I still keep, I'm still in touch with the folks um you know that i worked with there and i continue
1: to be a champion of the howard hughes team that's great so then you take your talents to miami from there leading marketing for the marlins and the new ownership group right you had an opportunity now to work for a team kind of similar in the fact of brooklyn right kind of creating more of an expansion aspect with the new ownership group and and going out there and kind of telling what the new story derek and the team wanted to tell um you know how, how was that experience
0: so that was the that was the great experience. Um, number one, I love Miami. Miami is the great great city, full filled of di- filled of diversity and culinary and just arts. I mean, I just love that that city. Um, second, baseball. Brett, nobody warns me how long the baseball season is. I mean, my first ten day homestand. By day five, I was like, I can't do this for another five nights. I survived um and you know baseball is just very different than basketball um baseball is filled with tradition um and it was just very interesting from you know a city perspective in Miami we weren't competing with the Dolphins and the Panthers and the Heat we were competing with the Miami lifestyle. So on a Sunday afternoon, when we had, you know, tip off at 110, we weren't competing, you know, with a Miami heat game, we were competing with people wanting to be out on the bay on their boats, or at the beach with their family. So um, the great thing that we had at Marlins Park was that we were an air conditioned venue. So during the summer months, that was something that you know, if you didn't want to be outside in the heat, you could come in and it was affordable and still is affordable entertainment for a family. So it was just, um, you know, Miami was a great experience. And, you know, I think that they, they, you know, they're going to be successful. They have work to do, but they're going to get there.
1: And what was your biggest challenge in growing that fan base?
0: Well, I think that, the biggest challenge Brett was the first generation Florida Marlins fans. So the team when they were the Florida Marlins, they were technically, well, pe- people will argue that they were in Broward County, but that's not true. They were literally on the line that had Brow- that was Broward and Miami-Dade. So when they the team moved down to further down in Miami-Dade County, the first-generation fans felt like they had been forgotten about because they were in Broward County, and that wasn't the case. Um, that was absolutely not the case, and I think that was the biggest challenge was making the making that connection with those fans and making them feel that they were still part of the fan base while continuing to grow the fan base and continuing to further deepen the brand affinity within, um, you know, um, South Florida um, and beyond, you know, the Miami, um, I'm sorry, beyond the Broward um, County.
1: And what would you say was an example of a success you had from a grassroots marketing standpoint?
0: So one of the things that I'm really, really proud of during my time at the Marlins was we launched the Miami Marlins T-Ball program. So we wanted to grow the game of baseball and, you know, we, I remember we, we were having a conversation about, okay, so do we go after the traveling baseball kids? You know, how do we get into the schools? And I remember asking, you know, I asked, I was like, okay, well, what's the youngest age when someone, when kids start to play baseball and someone said, well, it's T-ball and they start playing when they're five and they're six. I'm like, well, that's who we have to go after because at taking a page from my previous life, when I was at the NBA, the commissioner Stern, rest his soul, his vision was to always put a basketball in a kid's hand. So I remember sitting in that room thinking, well, that's what we should be doing. We should be putting a baseball in a kid's hand if that's the sport that they're playing. And um, so we launched the T-ball program And our first year, our goal was to sign 100 teams. And we exceeded the goal. We signed 132 teams. And it was the greatest thing because I would get photos from people that, you know, would be eating at a diner and saying, oh, my God, the Miami Marlins just walked into the diner and you would see the picture and it would be little kids with their Miami Marlins t-shirts. So, you know, not only were we growing developing and growing Miami Marlins fans, but they were also walking billboards for us because every time they played and then they went out for ice cream or they went out for breakfast or they went out to eat, they had on their uniforms. So they were promoting the team.
1: And did you ever have a chance to do that <laughs> at Versailles on <laughs> Pagliot when you were there?
0: So, you know what? I have to tell you, we, we did, the day that we launched, we, had, we did Surprise and Delights. Um, And we did eight stops, and one of the stops was in Gate Ocho at Domino Park. And we had the team CEO handing out Marlins hats. Um, And it was like the footage from that day is just amazing. Um, And then we had um, folks at Versailles um, handing out cafecitos and also handing out baseball hats. So we were very, um, we were strategic in the locations where we were. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a great day for us.
1: And looking back at some of the different roles you had from a multicultural res- perspective early on in your career, you know, how did you say, how would you say that those opportunities really set you up for an opportunity like this that is, is a lot of that?
0: Yeah, so I absolutely. Couldn't, you know, when I think back to the days that, um, hbo when i think back to the days of you know of um at&t those those experiences set me up for miami because miami while everyone says it's a melting pot you have so many different cultures there you have cubans you have puerto ricans you have dominicans you have europeans you have um folks from latin america and one of the things that i learned about miami was Miami is a city where people do not assimilate and, you know, and become Miamians, where it's like when you go to New York, you assimilate and you become a New Yorker. In Miami, they hold on to where they're from, you know, that affinity to the country that they're from. So it was very interesting because like anything in marketing, one size doesn't fit all.
1: And how do you remember that evolving kind of the group sales program or the ticket sales around some of those nationalities and theme nights when you were there?
0: Yes. So we worked very, I worked very, very closely with the head of sales and the um, director of group sales. And we did heritage nights, um, which the team had done prior to our arrival there. Um, But, you know, there was the Cuban night. There was the Panama night there was um, Puerto Rico, there was Dominican Republic. I mean, Nicaragua night. I mean, we, we celebrated um, all the heritages and it was all tied into group sales. So you bought a ticket and you either got a t-shirt or you got a hat. you got some kind of keepsake. And then everybody got to sit together um, at within the, within the ballpark.
1: You know, it's funny, too, I know growing up around the Marlins, I had a chance to be at the World Series in 97 and see the transition you talk about from county line down to day, but I always found it interesting for a Sunday Mets game how Jewish Heritage Day just completely dominates the entire bowl. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah
1: good times you know so from here you transitioned back up to New York you had a chance to go back and work with some old you know I wouldn't say old but some former colleagues right yeah yeah Brett Yormark, Savazzi, some of the guys from the the Brooklyn days and you were able to help build out some creative strategy and in partnership marketing at Rock Nation Um, you know how was that at first?
0: So that was look. I, I was very grateful for the opportunity to be reunited with Mike and and with Brett. Um, since I had had a very successful tenure under Brett in Brooklyn, um, I got to Rock Nation and working on an agency side it was very very different than working on the property side. Um, and I quickly learned that it was very different to to sell a, a personality versus selling a ticket to an experience. Um, but I was I, I was at Rock Nation Brett for eight weeks and then I was furloughed due to COVID-19.
1: So um over the past year now you've created some new engaging content, right? With your lunchtime conversations and and kick it by EP. Um, you have the opportunity to highlight women making major contributions in business. You know, what have you enjoyed most about this so far?
0: Um, I think that what I've enjoyed the most is the conversations themselves is just providing women the opportunity to tell their story and at the end of the conversation it's snackable content so it's only 20 minutes at the end i ask every single person to provide three career insights um and that's career tips so whether you're just starting off in the, in the industry whether you're mid-level or whether you're a c-level executive you know, you can learn from their experiences. So the the conversations and the connections have been have been so grateful. And I can't believe that it's coming up on a year that I launched Kick It by EP Lunchtime Conversation. Um, so I'm very proud of the work you know that we've been able to accomplish this past year.
1: So you kind of my last question, you know, for those trying to get into the sports marketing space or even grow where they are what three pieces of advice would you give?
0: Oh my goodness, Brett, you're really turning the tables on me today. Um, number one is be authentic to who you are. Um, there's, you know, there is no one in the world like you, so authenticity matters. Um, number two, be humble. Um, and what I say is that who you see going up, you will see coming down. Um, So I think remaining humble is really, really important. And number three is just work hard. Um, I believe that the work speaks for itself. And I believe that if you do the work and you deliver, the next opportunity will come.
1: That's great. I I think of authentic. I think of being unique. And I know there's no one more unique than me. (laughs) I love it. So thank you so much for coming and contributing to the program. It was great having you on. And, um, you know, I definitely look forward to chatting with you soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Brett. thank you so much for having me on and um, having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Equity Podcast, where we discuss the value that sports brings to business. Follow us for new episodes on a weekly basis. See you next time.